We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. All right, welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson here with Andy Raskin. And our audience is primarily people who work in finance, strategy, or operations at fast-growing tech companies. And when I get asked for career advice, I often tell people that storytelling is perhaps the most indispensable skill for someone who deals with numbers, which may sound counterintuitive at first, but I think a lot of people pigeonhole themselves into just being a, quote, numbers person or an Excel person and they forget that the numbers are really just meant to serve as characters within an overall narrative arc. So Andy, I'm excited to have you on and I got to thank you up front because you've actually helped me already in my career. Well, great to be here and great to hear that. How so? So uh, I recently raised a Series C as a CFO at a vertical SaaS company that I work at. And when I was designing the pitch deck for it, I relied on the framework that you've used to convey overall company messages, not just a finance message, but the strategic narrative of the company. And so when, I, when you answered my cold email to come on, I was pumped because I'm a, I'm a consumer and a tried and true user of your frameworks. That's so great to hear. I think there's this idea that like the message is, is sort of like a marketing thing because it's, I don't know, has to do with words, I guess. I consistently hear from... Well, of course, people at product and other areas, but also CFOs that this is just like a really core part of what they have to do, obviously, in, in pitching the company, uh, but also even in, you know, budget conversation, pitch it, you know, what are, where are we going to spend money on? It, it just comes in just so many parts of, of the job. So I hear that from a lot and it's good to get that kind of uh, validation from you too. I think in, maybe I didn't notice it at first, but I also rely on some of the components of the strategic narrative, which I'll get into when I do have those budgeting conversations with my peers, because a lot of times you're saying, hey, we're brokering resources here. And if I give you this, then that means collectively we can't do that. And this is the problem we're trying to solve. So it does help with communicating a lot of messages, not just the, hey, can you give me money? Yeah. And I hear from folks, I mean, especially in the product side, uh, which is kind of related to the, what you're saying, we have to build some features and we have to not build others. So how do we prioritize? And I often hear that this narrative becomes kind of the North Star for making those decisions, you know, at a, at a high level. Obviously, there's lots and lots of things to think about, but at a high level, you know, to have that kind of filter is really helpful. So, Andy, just to kick things off here, can you give us a definition of, of what a strategic narrative is? Yeah, I'll give you the definition. Let me let me give you a little uh, background first before I do. So hopefully it makes a little more sense. So when I was kind of coming up and I went to business school and, you know, started out as a, a marketer, you know, the way I was taught to pitch is what I would call what I call the arrogant doctor. So the structure of it is you have a problem pain, we have the solution, some kind of treatment. And let me tell you why it's better than the other treatments. So this, the, this, the whole structure of the thing, I mean, it sounds kind of customer focused because starting with your problem, but 
it really winds up being real focused on, well, let me brag about why we're better than the other products. And this is the right way to pitch for a lot of things. You know, the things we buy in our daily lives, you know, that's how buyers make decisions. Like we're going to round up all the alternatives, you know, create some kind of bestness score for each one, and we're going to pick the best one, right? But I found that when I, especially when I was getting involved in like pitching B2B companies, my own, so I was a startup founder and also working as a marketer and others, that it was a little different. Uh, first of all, the products are so complex, you know, these sprawling platforms with lots and lots of features. We're going to say, okay, our product is better in this way. Well, there's so many, can the buyer really even evaluate that uh, without, you know, spending hours and hours with the product? So it gets very easy for these like other everyone to make sort of the same claims and hard for the buyer to suss out whose claims haul water. What I started to see was that the breakout companies, especially like in B2B SaaS, were doing this different thing. And what I'll say is they, they were kind of positioning themselves as a movement. Like instead of seeing themselves as selling software, they were seeing themselves as selling a movement. And you asked how I define strategic narrative. I define it as the story they're telling that kind of transforms the buying of a product into the joining of a movement. But that's my definition, at least the one I like right now. I love how you use the word movement because it makes people feel like they're on this journey. And it's an active term to kind of feel like you're, you're along for the ride or you're participating in something bigger than just you have a problem, I have a solution. Yeah. And I think it's especially you, know, you talk about CFOs pitching you know, investors or, or whatever, that movement shift also, it's kind of catnip for investors because they can smell opportunity in the change. It absolutely is. And when I've been fundraising in the past, another term that we've tried to cling to is category. Say that we're defining a category or the de facto standard for a category. Is that the same thing as a movement or are those two different things? I find when people talk about, hey, we're going to create a category, the thing they focus on is, well, what's the, cat what's the three-word name of this category that is going to magically make us sound like, like something totally new and amazing and everyone's going to get it and, and all that? And with very, very few exceptions, it just doesn't work that way. What happens is, even if you look at all the category books, like thing, books like Play Bigger, which is a big uh, book about how to start a category, they all talk about, well, what's a category? Oh, it's this story about a shift from an, an, an old way of being, an old mindset to a new mindset. And I think when people talk about category, they, they really lose, they lose sight of that. And when I talk about the narrative instead, I'm, I'm really focused on, well, what is that story that is going to imbue this category name with meaning. I, I, I kind of see the category name almost like a logo. Like logo designers famously say logos are like kind of empty vessels that you you fill up with meaning. You know, so now, you know, you look at the Nike logo and it, oh, it has this, this tremendous amount of meaning. But when it first started, it was just a little <laughs> design that had no meaning you know, or not much. I think it's the same way with category names. Uh, some of the greatest category names, you know, that like I, I wrote this post uh, about Zwara a bunch of years ago. 
maybe you created this category about subscription economy, you know, if you talk to the CEO, like Tian Suo, he's like, well, when we first came up with it, we thought, wow, that's really horrible. Like it's going to make people think of like just magazines and stuff, like just cheap infomercials. But it, by telling that story about the shift from, hey, we used to buy software through transactions or lots of things through, through transactions and now we're buying through software, it, it, it takes on a meaning over time. Zora is an excellent example. And I remember that post. It went quite viral. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes. Just before we jump into the components of the strategic narrative for people, do you mind giving an example of a company who has a strategic narrative to make it just a little bit more real? Yeah, sure. Well, one I can talk about, this is a company that makes uh, software for robotics developers. Uh, the company is called Foxglove. Foxglove.dev is their website. So let's say you're building like a fleet of, of autonomous, I don't know, lawnmowers or you know, self-driving cars and something goes wrong with one of them. Well, you're going to have to like get all this software off the, off the robot. You may have to do like simulations locally to figure out what happened using all the sensor and image data. You have to deploy fixes. So anyway, Foxglove lets you do all that stuff. And the CEO, uh, Adrian McNeils, so they're, they're a series A company. They've raised around something around 20 million. You know, they have some traction, but he was telling me like, hey, we basically go and pitch, here's the data we let you get at and here's how we organize it for you. And he said, you know, what was happening was companies weren't really getting like the business value, especially senior execs weren't getting like, well, why do I need to capture all this data? And, you know, all the, it just wasn't coming through. So the narrative we built, it starts with this declaration that robots have graduated from the lab. And they summarize this as goodbye prototypes, hello production. And what, what this is about is we went to their customers and we said, hey, you know, what is the big shift in your world that basically keeps you up at night? That 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 is life and death stakes for you. That that of course that our software helps you deal with. And this is what they told us. They said, hey, you know, it used to be even just a few years ago for a robotics company. If you were built a great prototype in a lab that that worked, you were you were a successful company. That's no longer the case. Now these machines have to work at scale out in the field. And so you have this new challenge. So that's the kind of the the, the centerpiece of the narratives, this shift from robotics prototypes to robotics production. The core of it is what I call this shift in the world from an old game of prototypes to new game uh, production. That's amazing. I've tried to do it for my own company to, to play back the components of the narrative. So did it start with what you call naming the old game? Yeah. So I sometimes call it, I call it name the old game or sometimes I call it naming the enemy. Oh, naming the enemy. Say more about that. <laughs> I think every great narrative has an enemy, right? Like, you know, Star Wars has an enemy, but what's the enemy in Star Wars, right? Like, Let's talk about the, the, the first movie, you know, uh, A New Hope. On the face of it, it's Darth Vader. But I actually don't think that Darth Vader is the real enemy. The real enemy in Star Wars is, for Luke, is it's a mindset. It's the mindset that, you know, you win by being all powerful and selfish. And, you know, yes, Vader embodies that mindset, of course, but... Luke is battling that in himself too, right? He starts out as this kind of, you know, he's a teenager. He wants adventure. He wants to have, you know, kind of wants the thrill of it. That mindset 
is the enemy that he has to defeat. And it's, you know, uh, Obi-Wan helps him get over that and, you know, become a more selfless person who, you know, cares about other people. And so in the similar way, when I say name the enemy, sometimes people say, oh, the enemy is some problem that the buyer has. You know, so for instance, uh, in the, the example I just gave you, you might say, oh, the enemy is, you know, the ability to monitor these machines out in the field. But I actually don't see it that way. I think the, the enemy is this old mindset of, hey, we just have to have succeed in, in, in prototyping. And, you know, that's kind of the way we're working. We're going to have to shift it. So, yes, you asked the first thing I do is identify what's that old mindset that the buyer is kind of clinging to. Maybe they don't even realize it or, or haven't articulated it. But can we articulate it in a, in a, in a, in a nutshell real fast? I love how you labeled it as a mindset because it's not always a physical enemy. It, it can also just be something that's in your head that you may not even know is there that's forcing you to continue down whatever old habits you have. And then in the, sec- the second uh, component to it, it sounds like you have to name the stakes to hook them. Is that right? Yeah. Well, that first part is we want to name the enemy, but then also what's the new mindset that we're, we're championing that we're saying, hey... The winners are already jumping on this this new mindset bandwagon. So with Zwara, it's you know shifting from that old enemy of of hey we're just going to sell things transaction mindset to hey we're going to sell things on subscription or services models. With uh, Gong, uh, Gong. Uh, so I worked with their team early on, and that narrative was was all about sales leaders can rely on on opinions. That was the old <laughs> enemy mindset. Now the winners need this view of reality. And yes, getting to the second piece, you know, we want to make sure that this shift we're talking about has life and death stake for the buyers. So it's not just like, oh, here's some shift that's happening for your education. What we want to know is that when we talk about this, they're going to say, oh, yes, yes, this is what's keeping me up at night. Uh, You know, that's how we knew uh, with Foxglove when we started talking about this with the robotics uh, engineers and the C-suite folks who would say, hey, we're seeing this shift. And they would say, yes, we're seeing this. And and let me, and then they start opening up about all the challenges that they're facing because of this. For salespeople, this is like discovery gold. You know, we want to, we want to hear this. And, you know, likewise, I think for a CFO, you know, who's pitching like a, you know, an investor say, Who's the first call that that investor is going to make for due diligence? They're going to call and say, okay, put me in touch with some of your customers. They're going to call the customer and they're going to say, well, why did you want to, why did you buy this? Right. And like, what what is so important about this? And so by being able to kind of plant that seed first in the investor's mind, like, hey, here's why it's life and death stakes urgent for them. The investor can kind of, is a little more prepared to go, you know, make that call and say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I'm hearing, right? You name the old game, you hook them on what the stakes are, which it seems like is kind of a catalyzing chapter in this because it causes them to open up and realize like, oh shit, I don't want to you know, be on the other end of this deal. What do you frame up after that? So we name the old game and the new game. So pro- remember, prototypes, production, or name that shift. You know, sometimes it's just obvious, like it has stakes. <laughs> sometimes we'll call it out. What Zwara did was they said, hey, look, Look at the winning companies now. They're all subscription companies. Uh, look at the losers. They're all, you know, they're, they're clinging to that old, oh, we're going to sell you some something outright model. 
Usually after that, I have no template, like no slide deck template, because I just don't believe in that. Like it's always different a little bit. But usually I then go to this thing. The old tools weren't built for this. You know, somehow showing that whatever other things people might think of as alternatives were not built for this new game that we're talking about. Those could be you know, anything that the in the buyer's mind or in the investor's mind, they might say, oh, well, isn't this like X? We're, we're kind of anticipating that. And I do this usually before we even talk about product, before we talk about our thing, because we're really trying to say, hey, there's a kind of our thing sized and shaped hole in the market. <laughs> Sometimes to do that, the old tools weren't built for this, we'll ask some how will you questions. So like I said, with Thought Foxglove. Well, how are you going to get the data off all these robots? How are you going to do this and this and this? And they would say the old tools weren't built for this, obviously. And then we've kind of laid out requirements. And now we talk about why ours are, and we're going to answer all those how will you questions, right? And we're going to, you know, show evidence, case studies, whatever you got. Uh, this is where, you know, demos and things like that, if that's appropriate. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Andy, some companies are reluctant to name their competitors by name. What's your take on that? Should you be taking all objections off the table and saying, yeah, I realize that you may compare me to company X. Here's why I'm different. You're right. Like so, Some companies have different tolerances for this. I don't prescribe either way. I think it can work just as well to say like, we don't have to say like, oh, this company X, Y, and Z, but we could say, hey, this kind of bucket of companies and give them a name like uh, in Foxglove situation, there's a bunch of uh, companies in what's called uh, fleet ops. So of robotics fleet ops. So fleet ops tools sound kind of similar. They're like, oh, I'm, I can control a, a large fleet of robots. But they're really more about the, hey, I want to, you know, direct all my robots to do some activity a certain time or know what they're all doing. They're not tools for a developer to know, to dig down deep into the data to know like, oh, did this, instead of naming all the different, you know, fleet ops, we just say, hey, fleet ops tool, you know, so we're giving them names uh, as kind of buckets of stuff. And then if the, if the person we're talking says, oh, you mean like this company? Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. They're in the fleet ops. Other teams have wanted to explicitly name the competitors or the alternatives and specifically call out, you know, why they're 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 not built for this. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of agnostic about how they do it. I've always been of the mind that you're going to get the question from the investor anyway, so you may as well show why you're different. And in my mind, because I do think in slides for better or worse, I think about the grid where you choose the vectors that you play on. So. Airbnb always did that well in their pitch decks when they were going against hotels where in you know a consumer's mind it's potentially the same thing in terms of options but if you if you kind of illustrate it in a way that puts you on different vectors it, it can it can change the perception when someone reads it those vectors are kind of like arrogant doctoring you know they're they're hey here are these two attributes we picked and of course we're going to be in the upper right and everybody else is going to be in the lower left or somewhere around there right and it's basically a version of, oh, let me tell you why we're, we're better than, uh, than all the competitors. It totally is. And I've, I've, I've been the person who always finds a way to get into the upper right. So guilty as charged there. <laughs> we all do, right? We all do. 
So kind of what this, the old tools weren't built for this is kind of going to an, an extreme in that. It's not saying, hey, we're better on than them on these certain vectors. It's saying literally they are not built to, to, to play in this space, to, to help you join the movement that we're talking about. And that sets you truly apart by saying that this is a completely different ball game that we're playing here. So yes, I acknowledge that this may have been the old way of doing things, but we're talking about something fundamentally different. Yes. And I think we can even do that with something that feels like it would be a close competitor. You know, is there a way that we can define our kind of view on the world, our approach, such that what might seem like a close competitor is actually not in the same ballpark? I love that. And so what, uh, what other elements of this strategic narrative did we not hit on there? So there's one piece I call, I used to call it naming the promised land. I changed it because people, people kind of interpret that in a lot of different ways. You know, I use this phrase mindset. Sometimes I talk about it as a game. So what was the old game? What's the new game? So the old game for, you know, robotics companies was prototypes. The new game is, is production. And then I'll say, what's the object of that new game? You know, what's the object as a way to, without having to tell a whole long story about the shift in the world and everything, just is there some way to phrase it down so that we're giving the buyer, I'll sometimes called the buyer mission statement. You mentioned Airbnb and Airbnb for a while had this, these just two words at the top of their website. It said, live anywhere. And I think if you think about that, that really is the buyer mission statement for Airbnb, right? Um, in a way, it's a kind of asymptotically unachievable, like we're not literally going to live there, but we're, we're going to try and get you as close as you can to living there through you know, staying in the in a real place. And they have this experiences offering where you can do activities locally. With every team, I'm also looking to articulate that. So with uh, Foxglove, the buyer mission statement became understand how your robots sense, think, and act. That's the, uh, th that sense, think, and act is actually a robotics uh, industry phrase. Ultimately, we want to understand how each of these things is doing that thing. That's kind of the goal state for their buyer that they're putting out there. Maybe a stupid question, but do you have to articulate why what you're doing is hard or why there are obstacles along the way? Or is this good enough that we've kind of shown you the promised land? You don't need to know how the sausage is made. That's the how will you questions. That's exactly what the how will you questions are about. We we say, hey, all the winners are, you know, now building, you know, building toward production and, you know, going to scale in production or all the Winning sales leaders are acting on a view of reality. Well, if that's an easy thing to achieve, you don't need us <laughs> to help you. So there's got to be hard things. And that's where those how... So, okay, well, as a sales leader, well, how are you going to know what's be, literally what's being said in all the sales calls that's happening? How are you going to you know, take those insights and turn them into some kind of program for your team so that, you know, you can feed them back into doing better. I don't know, all these questions, right? And you can imagine in that case, Gong is going to then talk about product features that address all those things. How I originally found you is I was working on our Series C deck and I was trying to tell a story that was less problem solution, less arrogant doctor. And so my company, Parts Tech, is changing how auto mechanic shops order their parts for whatever job you need to be done, whether it's your brake pads or exhaust. And so 
I'll give you my 30 second overview of how I did it, Andy, and you can you can pick it apart. So first, I named the old game slash the enemy. So people used to order parts over the phone, and the phone is the enemy in that sense. Then I said the new way here is, hey, you can order online, so you don't have to pick up the phone and call Jim at AutoZone anymore for your parts and try to read this really complicated VIN number to him over the phone. The next thing I said is, let me name the stakes to make this more real for you. So you can't always get what you want when you need it. And there are a lot of returns that happen with parts that are really expensive to send back. So the fitment information for one car isn't going to be the same as the other. And if you try to order it over the phone, either they may not have the part, they may not get it to you in time. And you have a car that's stuck on the bay that costs $150 an hour. And maybe they do send it to you, but it's the wrong one. You got to send it back. So it's pretty expensive um, if you mess this up. And then I said, the objective here is to give you an omni-channel procurement experience where you can order from all your suppliers. So you can go into a portal, you can, you can type in a VIN number or a year making model, and you can see AutoZone has these parts, they can get it to you in 45 minutes. Napa has these parts, they can get it to you in 25 minutes. Advanced Auto has these parts and they can get it to you in 30. So it's kind of like the kayak.com experience. And I said, but... How are we going to do that? You know, the data is dispersed, it's wide ranging, and it's really hard to nail down. There are new car cars coming to the market every year. And so to overcome that obstacle, what we've done is we've built a data catalog that no one else has. It's our secret sauce that has all the part fitment information for every car in the world. So that, that, that's what, how I did my deck in, in a TLDR summary. Who cares what I say? You know, we'll, I'll talk about it, but, but how did it go? How did, how did it, how is it played? It worked uh, because I think you had to get people over this mindset shift of this is how it's always been done. Auto sales are, you know, called 6% of America's GDP every year and they're totally fine ordering stuff over the phone. So it can't be that broken. And we had to show them how expensive it was and give them examples that, listen, not even, you know, shoe sales from Zappos have a 20% return rate. So we had to break through that mindset shift. And I never thought that I was breaking through a mindset shift. I thought I was. It was a more tangible thing like phone versus online, but it, that's what it comes down to, how people have historically done things. Yeah. I mean, I, it's always hard for me to give, uh, you know, give advice without a lot of context that I get from actually working with folks. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like you got a lot of the elements there. You know, one of the things I wondered about is when you say uh, phone to online, you know, there's already, a, I'm sure, even before your company comes around, there's a lot of online offerings. I'm sure that they, that maybe they had heard about or whatever. Maybe I'm. Am I right about that? Yeah. And so what we said is most of them only offer a single channel experience where you can order from just O'Reilly Auto Parts. What if you could see all your suppliers in real time? Right. You know, one thing I I feel like one way to to talk about this would be like, hey, you know. And I'm not saying it's better because what you did worked. So I'll just give you one idea and we can talk about it. Is hey, you know, this online, this online buying revolution has just trans like has transformed every industry. You know, but we're left behind. You know, but 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 automatics, auto mechanics have been left behind. You know, we're 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 either ordering from the phone, or if there is something online, it's like whatever you said was wrong with it. It's like a single, a single vendor or single distributor or something like that. 
you know, I'm sure they've heard this sort of, hey, we should be going online, you know, thing before. Um, But so acknowledging also, I think up front, like, hey, why hasn't this happened for us uh, might, might also be give you some juice. So we asked a simple question. Sometimes I like to give that that buyer mission as a question. And you kind of, you, you had one that was some, tell me it was the omni-channel thing. What, what did you say? An omni-channel procurement experience for all your auto part needs. How about, can we get the word omni-channel out of it? Cause it's like a complex kind of fancy word. Could you make it a little plainer language? Like we were playing around with the idea of one search to rule them all, but it was too Lord of the Ringsy. It might not be perfect, but let's say you know, like find anything you need in in a, in a single search and have it in have it in twenty four hours or or less. I don't know something something like that. Get any part in twenty four hours or less that you ever ever need. You know, maybe just get it to that. And so sometimes I like to ask it as a question. So hey, we so we said hey, there's this movement to online, but but we've been left behind in our space. And then I like to ask questions. So we asked a simple question: What would it take? for auto mechanics to, you know, get any part they needed in 24 hours, you know, and be sure it was the right one and all, all that stuff, right? Or or maybe it's like 45 minutes or whatever it is, right? And then we say, well, we'd have to solve these problems. How would you this? How would how would you have access to like every single distributor? How would you, you know, all this stuff, right? Well, the old tools weren't built for this, you know. You actually might not need the old tools weren't built for this because Already, you've kind of said, "Hey, it's not you know, it's not hasn't happened." Um, and you say, "Hey," and that's what we built. I like the question aspect to it because it says, "What would Nirvana look like?" And then you show them the path that took to get there. So I'm I'm going to start using the question rather than the statement. So I, I use this framework. I'm going to use it again. But my question is, how often do, do we as a company? So not just me, but we as a company. How often should we be updating this strategic narrative? You know, that's such a depends question. You know, you use it and then, you know, in some cases it's going to be, you know, the market changes, the world changes in some way that we might have to update it in a year. I'd say more commonly, I see it kind of have legs for a few years, sometimes much longer. Eventually, though, yeah, like if it's really successful, others are going to start seeing a similar story. And they're gonna, you know, they're gonna start parroting you. I mean, there's, there's not, there's nothing you can say that that's not gonna happen. And so, I think the people who are really good at this start evolving it when they kind of sense this is starting to happen. I mean, there's a knee-jerk reaction to go back to arrogant doctoring, like, oh yeah, they're saying the same thing, but here's the three features we have that are better than that, right? Um, and the sales team and salespeople are going to come to you if you have a sales team like, hey, we need those. We need those points of why we're better than them. One model I think is really great for looking at this is 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 Benioff. You know, Benioff really, to me, is the one when he st- when he launches Salesforce is the first one to, to, to come out with this really great strategic narrative. He says, hey, that old mindset called software own and operate the, the code on your own machines that's now a road to ruin. That's the enemy. Uh, and the new, the new mindset, the movement we're championing is the cloud. And he tells that story for like 15 years, <laughs> something like that. But eventually it starts around 2015. So he started, he launched Salesforce in 2000. Yeah? And eventually though, you know, it is around 2015, the cloud becomes very u- ubiquitous. 
now instead of you, know, you want to start a website or a web company, you're not going to buy your own machines. This is where around 2015, now you're going to just go to a hosting company and they're going to, you're going to spin them up in the cloud. And then he starts telling a different story. It's like a bigger story. It's for, then for a few years, it's like, he calls it the connected enterprise. So we used to have the, like things were disconnected and silos. Now everything's connected. And he told that story for a few years. Then, and, and by the way, every year at Dreamforce, he tells the story. And usually it's the same for a few years and then it's a new one. When, and so the, now these, unless I followed every year for a while, it was that, then, then it was um, the trusted enterprise. It was all about trust. This was especially during pandemic and, you know, anyway. then just recently in the, in the latest Dreamforce, he's telling a story. He's like, now everyone can be a, an Einstein. I mean, that's using his, their, their product name for their AI solution, but that's a story about, hey, AI used to be this kind of, I don't know, ivory tower kind of thing or senior level or techie thing. And now everybody in every department is going to get to be a genius. This is a different kind of narrative. This is a new narrative, right? And what's interesting is people at Salesforce tell me he actually insists on everyone at Salesforce. So not only sales and marketing people, but finance people, product people, engineers get certified on presenting this deck, this this narrative. You know, I think for the reasons we've talked about. And 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 I think that's that that's kind of the 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 shining example I have in terms of how to think about evolving it, how to evolve it, all that that you're asking about. And that's a good tee up. So how should the CFO specifically then get involved in the strategic narrative? Because like you mentioned, it's a company wide thing and it sounds like it starts with the CEO. But how should the CFO kind of play into that? You know, you said it, it starts with the CEO. That's my that's my approach. And you know, I, I started doing this work probably around ten years ago. And after a few years, I kind of looked at it like because I didn't insist that the CEO lead it. Often it would be a marketing person or, or some other person, a founder who wasn't the CEO. And I look back like which were the projects I did where it was like really the most effective and the, like they could see the, the results in it. it was always where the CEO was like the person who reached out to me, who led the work directly. Like, and so I began to insist on that. Not everyone, you know, that's a controversial approach in some places, some places, you know, it's the CEO will delegate it. Even when the CEO leads it, it can't just be the CEO, right? Because it it can't just be the CEO dictating. It has to have some buy-in from the senior leadership team. And to me, this is when I get involved in engagement, like this is really the work. One CEO I work with said, you know, I read your posts about the structure of how to do it. I thought it was great. So I, I actually built a deck. I thought it was pretty good. I showed it to my CFO. He thought it was pretty good. He said, just make a couple of these little changes. I brought it to my head of sales. Uh, she said, mm, yeah, pretty good. But you know those changes that he asked for? Um, change those back and make these changes instead. So, And he said, this became like a year and a half of hell, of <laughs> trying to align. And so that alignment, I think, is the biggest piece. And so when I work with CEOs, I ask them to create a small team that has leaders of sales, marketing, product. And, and very often, there's a CFO in that group. Sometimes it's the CFO. Sometimes it's you know a, a co-founder who kind of leads finance or, or whatever. 
the role that person plays usually I work with, I have a session where I kind of ask everybody for like, you know, I, I lay out the the structure like you and I did and I say, okay, well, what are the pieces for you, for your buyer? You know, what is that old game and new game? You can imagine we get like all these millions and millions of, of notes and ideas. So then CEO and I go create a draft. And then I have the CEO present that to this small team that often includes the CFO. I always tell the team this first presentation of that draft is going to be the low point of our work together. And you can imagine the team has all these millions of genuinely great ideas, but to get to something clean and powerful, the CEO is going to have to get rid of pretty much all of them <laughs> to, to you know, maybe save just a few uh, to build something around. And you know, the CFO can then, the, the good news, this is where that team, the leadership team gets to weigh in on. And the CFO is going to have a, a really important perspective, which is often, well, yeah, this thing we're talking about, like, oh, everybody's talking about that, you know, in, in the finance community. And it's just not very differentiated. We got to come up with something else or, or no. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is, this is something that's, you know, I, I hear a lot on a lot of people's minds, all, all that stuff too. I, I see them as bringing a really important perspective to it. And it's, it's really not uncommon at all that the CFO is part of that very small team. And I want to stress to the CFOs out there that this is something that I don't look at as homework. I look at it as a huge asset for me to tell the story to investors, to potential partners out there. And it's helped keep me on the straight and narrow just from a consistency standpoint of how I talk about the value that our company provides. So if you can get involved in this, it's a game-changing way to talk about what your company does. A Andy, maybe gearing towards a close here. So I've found a lot of value in this. I'm sure others will too. We got some CFOs listen to the podcast with some budget. Maybe they can carve some out, but where can people find you if they would like help with their strategic narrative? Uh, well, LinkedIn is a good place to connect with me. I also have a podcast where I talk with CEOs about our work together. That podcast is called The Bigger Narrative, and you can find it on whatever podcast platform you want. The CEOs, what we're talking about is the work. And in the work, you know, there is this big question, like, what are we going to build? Like, literally, what is the thing where, how, where are we going to write this story down and in what form? And the traditional answer to that is we're going to put it in a place the world never sees, some kind of internal messaging document or, you know, marketers call it like a messaging house or something. And I found, you know, the, the idea of that is everybody's going to come back to this internal thing and like grab messages from it when they want it. You know, the CFO is going to come to the, that thing and pull the fragment messages and t use those when talking to, to uh, investors, or whatever. And I found that that wouldn't happen. Like people wouldn't actually come back to that thing. And even when they did, it was kind of hard for them to, to, to take those messages and string them together in something compelling. So I thought really hard, like what would work better? And I came to the sales deck as like the core narrative asset. And, you know, you talked about consistency. We're looking, like you said, to have consistency between what is sales and marketing and product and, and CF and finance saying and I found like the sales deck is like, if we could all line on that, great. So what you hear in this podcast is, is the CEO talking about building the sales deck and building it with these, but with these higher level, you know, executives, that's a controversial approach. You know, often the sales deck is seen as some, I don't know, output of some more fundamental, I don't know, marketing document or something or strategic document. But you can hear folks in this podcast talk about like why that approach has worked for them. I love it. 
That's great stuff. I'm going to tune in as well to uh, keep refining my story. Andy, thank you so much for being generous with your time and, and stopping by. Great. Great talking with you, CJ, and uh, glad to hear the pitch work for you. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.